This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. Good morning. Of course, the thing that I really want to do is encourage your zazen. But I don't really want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it because I could tell you all kinds of things. You know, pay attention to your breath or, you know, hand over the talking stick to the universe, you know, all kinds of things. But every one of us has judging mind. And I'm afraid anything I could tell you about what might be good for your zazen becomes a criteria. Right? Like, okay, am I paying attention to my breath? No. Wow. Good, bad. Right? This can happen. It really can happen. Human beings sometimes judge things. thing about Zazen is Zazen has nothing whatsoever to do with anything that goes on in your mind. Not quietness, not noise. Zazen has nothing to do with that. Dogen said, the character of this school is just devotion to sitting. Zazen has to do with sitting on the cushion. in something approximately an upright posture, approximating an upright posture, right? Which is not a whole, you know, we all have our ideas of upright. It's not even an idea. Our body has its idea of upright. Sometimes the mind goes this way. And if I do go around and I, you know, make a suggestion, put my hand on your back or your shoulders or whatever, You might be tempted to think about it as, oh, I was doing it wrong. So I very rarely do that. I really, I probably should do it more than I do it, but I, I'm, I'm always deterred by the thought that, oh, will that person feel criticized? So you should know if I do that, what's going on is that I'm not correcting your posture. But some postures are more comfortable than others, right? It turns out that if we're going to sit without back support on a cushion, a certain posture, a posture that has certain elements, is more comfortable and more sustainable than others. So a lot of times I'll, uh, you know, take a person's head and point it in the right direction. It's not because aesthetically pleasing that way. It's because if, if we have our head this way, we're bound to do something in this area of the body that's just not good for it. And it's hard to, to uh, sustain our zazen if we're in pain. I mean, I suppose um, there's, no, there's no help for it. There will be some discomfort. 
and it's outside. If you sit long enough, you know, some discomfort is going to arise. But it's just sometimes I see, oh, I think that might be more comfortable. When I adjust your posture, it may feel like totally weird. It may not feel more comfortable at all, and the thing that you might do within 30 seconds is go back to the way you were. Okay, I tried it. Um, sometimes it takes trying it, you know, a little longer. Once I was in a, a sashin, and uh, I was really hurting, and, and I was thinking in the middle of this period, uh, I'm going to have to go up and use a chair the next period. And the teacher came by, and he made an adjustment to my posture. I had been in a fair amount of pain. As soon as he made the adjustment to my posture, pain went away. Wow, so I told him about that in Dokusan. He said, yes. <laughs> You know, that was his object. <laughs> that was what he was shooting for. Not, uh, you know, well, you look like a better student if you do this. I had a disc injury. This teacher also had a disc injury. So he knew what it was like. You know. Sazen has nothing to do with what's going on in our mind. It's just about sitting on the cushion. If you're sitting on the cushion, you're doing it right. If your mind is quiet, you're doing it right. If you're judging yourself, you're doing it right. <laughs> because doing it right means just devotion to sitting, just engagement in a mobile city. We think of it as, you know, an effort of will sometimes. And sometimes it feels that way to get through a period, you know. Uh, without a lot of movement. We think of it as an effort of will, but will is really over-sold, uh, you know, in our culture, even in Zen, because, you know, we have forms, and we think we should will ourselves to forms. Sometimes we arrive from Zazen, and we realize it's not a matter of will, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not. Everybody has had the experience of a leg falling asleep, and it you get up and the, the normal sensations that your brain is getting from your leg just aren't there. And so you can't control what the leg does. It's just, it's just like what we were talking about, the teaching of the insentient. <laughs> we have insentient legs sometimes, and they should teach us something. <laughs> they should teach us that this is not a matter of will. Dogen talked about you can take a boat out, out, out onto Lake Michigan. And you can raise the sail and you can row with the oars. But the boat gives you a ride. It's your sailing that makes a boat a boat, but it's the boat that makes you a sailor. So, Yes, we can raise the sails, we can sit right, we can let go of thoughts, we can do all kinds of stuff. But what makes Zazen is the boat. Our boats are, happen to be made of cloth today. But that's what makes Zazen. The Zen life depends on going beyond our typical ideas. Like Lake Michigan. You know, we know it, it's over there, it's wet, it's 
stuck her hand in it, it would feel soft, cool, easy to put her hand in. It's to the east of us. But look, if we were to fall into Lake Michigan from not even that great a height, 10 feet, 20 feet, how soft would it feel? <laughs> right? <laughs> not very. And where is it really? We say it's to the east. But let me ask you, is there humidity in the air? Is there blood in your veins? Are your body cells hydrated? When you need to pee, where is Lake Michigan then? So Lake Michigan is vast. We say it's this, right? You know, we could draw it on a map. Token says Lake Michigan is neither round or square. Its features are infinite in variety. They're not even contained by the shoreline. Uh, in Buddhism, there's a tradition of thinking about how other beings uh, experience the world. Uh, it's said that dragons experience water as a palace. Dragons live in water in this mythology, right? So it looks like a palace to them. Water looks to them the way a palace looks to us. Um, do you know the, uh, the teaching about hungry ghosts? Hungry ghosts, uh, kind of a category of being in the world, um, can, can never be satisfied with anything. The, when you see depictions of them, they have enormous bellies and really small mouths. So there could never be enough getting through that mouth to fill that belly. So uh, to hungry ghosts, water is raging fire. To other beings, water is, Dogen says, a wish-fulfilling jewel. Things go beyond the way we think about them. Remember yesterday, I was talking about the monk who asked his teacher, what is the mind of ancient Buddhas? And the teacher replied, fences, walls, tiles, and pebbles. Maybe even the gravel in the path that you guys were weeding yesterday. You were weeding Buddha's mind. But why does the teacher say something like that? The teacher says something like that because, as Dogen says, if you do not learn to penetrate your superficial views, you will not be free from the body and mind of an ordinary person. then you will not experience the land of Buddha ancestors or even the land or the palace of ordinary people. 
So this is important. If we do not learn to penetrate our super superficial views, we will not be free. I suppose we could say, you know, why do we sit? So we could penetrate our superficial views of sitting. Practice should help us, should help us do this. Dogen said that confined words and phrases do not lead to liberation. Great. It's like, of course they don't. <laughs> Why do we study these koans anyway? These teachings of masters uh, from 11 centuries ago, actually more, right? Back to the time of Buddha. Why do we study these teachings that are not in our everyday language? Because our everyday views will not awaken us. Our everyday views will hold us where we are. When I first started studying the Dharma, you know, I would read sutras and listen to teachers, and I just thought it was fascinating because here was this great religion of the world, you know, being displayed. and. Uh, all of its stories, its parables, its ideas were different from any other religion I had encountered. I thought, this is really interesting. You know, it's because, well, because it was true. But also, I could appreciate it because it was new. Right? Oh. I thought, how fascinating. It was a new world, a world with different images. But, you know, we use these different images, there's really only one point. When uh, Wei Neng, the great teacher in China, was talking to his teacher, his teacher said, my dharma must be transmitted mind to mind. Not in words, really. It must be transmitted maybe intuitively, mind to mind. And he said, you must help people awaken to themselves. So we try to do this mind to mind, or we could say tile to tile, or pebble to pebble. We try to awaken to ourselves. That's the point. And to do that, we can't cling so tightly to the way we think of ourselves. So this is the problem for all of us bodhisattvas, is how do we go beyond our views? How do we penetrate into our ideas? How do we become aware that thusness is us? So yesterday, we were talking about very old saying in our Soto Zen tradition that the insentient are constantly preaching the Dharma. And we have a lot of stories of people awakening just 
in contact with nature. One person saw plum blossoms, and he awakened to that. One person awakened when he heard the sound of a pebble striking a bamboo tree. A great teacher, Dongshan, who was considered the founder of our school in, in China, he awakened when he saw his reflection in a stream. Recently, I saw a hummingbird. You know hummingbirds. They're really cute, right? Small, fast, you know. This hummingbird was doing something I'd only seen a hummingbird do once before, and that it was like facing this way and flying in a straight line that way, and then turning back and flying in a straight line the other way, and zip, 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 like looking ahead, but moving sideways. <laughs> What's going on with this hummingbird, <laughs> right? And we can only imagine what the plan was for that hummingbird. Maybe it was some kind of mating ritual. It was spring. Uh, it was, you know, doing this in front of a, a bush that had flowers that it, it had been feeding on. But maybe inside the bush was female hummingbird. I don't know. I didn't see it. So it could have been something like that. It could have been just the ecstasy of spring makes hummingbirds do that kind of thing, fly sideways. <laughs> uh, or maybe this is what zazen is for hummingbirds. And it took a break from its busy day of harvesting nectar to do some zazen. I mean, really, what would zazen be for a hummingbird? Might be just flying with no particular purpose. <laughs> and maybe, I thought, this is how the ancestors talk to us about the existence of a world that is beyond our ideas. Because it was just being presented to me, and it was, I mean, I could have ideas about it, but they could only be ideas. Whatever happening was truly itself. Whatever was happening was truly itself. So, Dogen wrote a fascicle of um, Shobogenzo, his, his great collection of work, uh, called San Sui Kyo. San is mountain, Sui is water, Kyo is a word for a sutra, a teaching. And uh, it's kind of translated usually as Mountains and Waters Sutra or the Sutra of Mountains and Waters. The, the real meaning of this title is that mountains and waters in and of themselves are a sutra our teaching. So one of the famous teachings about mountains and waters is the great teacher Fuyo Dokai. He said to his assembly, the green mountains are always walking. A stone woman gives birth to a child at night.
And when we hear this, we're tempted to say, what? What could you possibly mean by saying this? How could that be true? And actually, that's almost the exact way we should respond. We just inflect the question a little differently. How could that be true? We, we take it as, this is a true statement told by a great practitioner in an effort to awaken his students. How could I take that in order to awaken? We kind of let go of our minds. We let them stretch. We open up to the Dharma. The green mountains are always walking. Well, what does the walking of mountains look like? Does any image come to mind or any thought come to mind? The green mountains are always walking. Tell me what it looks like. Um, earthquakes. Earthquakes. OK. Wow, no kidding. Yeah. Kilauea right now. OK. <laughs> That's the walking of mountains. OK, what else? Yes. Mountain ranges, just kind of thinking of all one mountain in a range is the same mountain, the way that it creates motion. It's like the mountain walks from one peak to the other. Yeah. I suppose that's true. The mountain does flow from one peak to the other, doesn't it? They're all connected. Other thoughts? I think like, like walking right, is like movement. Yes. But like, it's literally though it's also true because like the mountain is in a state of flux it's just happening mm. too slow for us to notice most of the time yeah most of the mm -hmm. time but you know so like you think about that it's in a state of flux but even just looking at a mountain day to day the clouds interacting with it may be different the way the wind is blowing on the trees is different you know it truly is like walking, it's constantly this state of flux sure. and change. So the movement of a branch on a tree on the mountains, you could look at that and say the mountain is walking. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah. Fish swimming in the river, walking of mountains. Yes? I suppose you could also say that uh, Our perception of, this, of what appears to be a solid, uh, continuous, yeah, um, uh, is constantly shifting because our con uh, our uh, experience of being is uh, constantly in motion. Yeah. So our experience of mountain is always shifting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Other images or thoughts? Yes. Uh, I'm thinking of the treadmill. Treadmill. <laughs> walking on treadmill. <laughs> it's walking. It doesn't seem to move very far. I don't know why. It's walking very vigorously. <laughs> sure. Yes. Great. 
Yes. And if we said the Green Mountain is sitting, that wouldn't be very challenging. Right. That's, that's right, how right, we right. think about mountains, right? Oh, they right. sit there, ponderously sitting. You know. right. So it doesn't, it doesn't penetrate any of our ideas. Right? Green Mountain's walking, yes. Were the Green Mountains doing kinhin right here mm -hmm. today? I won't ask for a vote, yes or no, but <laughs> something to think about, right? I mean, what's this phrase? A stone woman gives birth to a child at night. That, that's harder. Yeah, that, that's harder. Yeah, stone woman, right. Birth to a child at night. But do stone people do kinhin? I mean, we could say that too, right? Stone people do kinhin after sasa. What is this? <laughs> right? I mean, there's, there's one image for it. Well, it's minerals. It's dirt that somehow got, you know, converted into flesh. But it's just mountain <coughs> and water. So we could say mountains and waters took kin in after Zaza. It's just, we don't think about that. It's not familiar to us. Does anybody have any other images for stone woman gives birth to a child at night? Yes? The only one I can think of is um, various kinds of activities in the mountains, like temperature changes so that small rocks, in fact, tumble down. Sure. Um, because what kind of child would a stone woman give birth to? Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe rock. Right, maybe rock. Sure, okay. Or. Maybe a plant. Maybe, maybe he's saying mountains are like stone women. And what they give birth to is all of the creatures that come from them and depend on them. Maybe. Yeah. Or landslides. They could give birth to landslides. Yeah. Yes? Well, you could say that um, stone uh, mountain represents both discriminating consciousness and um, something beyond discriminating consciousness so that um, when you move from one level to the other um, then that's a sort of birth in some way into the sense that non-sentient beings um, that we share in that that being and that in some sense in the non-dual sense yes yes so that's very interesting. So st the stone being our, our uh, normal way of thinking about things as you know, individual things. But there's another level of consciousness that, that even our delusions can give birth to. And that's a level that sees the way everything is so interconnected. Sure. Could you explain how um, yeah, our delusions give birth, e actually even delusions give birth? 
well, where else could it come from? <laughs> right? Here we are, turning away our, you know, ideas. And maybe, you know, I'll tell you some equally false idea. But it'll give you an intuition of the possibility of a non-discriminating consciousness. So maybe it would emerge right out of delusion. You know, Dogen's teaching is that Buddhas are awakened to, to delusion. Sentient beings are deluded about awakening. But Buddhas are awakened to delusions. Yeah, you know. Yeah, go ahead. I think the at-night bit is really interesting. Okay. That light and of daytime. Sure. It's actually the nighttime that gives birth and the darkness and the um, the unknown and the uncertainty. Sure. Have you ever walked in in a forest at night? Yep. It's interesting. It's really, you know, it depending on what state of mind you're in, it can be really scary. <laughs> you know, really scary. Like I remember I was uh, out for a walk in it was dusk, and I thought, oh, it would be nice to go out for a walk at dusk. But then it got duskier and duskier. And, you know, I knew the path. I wasn't going to get lost. But I started walking faster and faster because I really couldn't tell what was around me, right? And, I mean, what was the worst thing that could have been around me? A squirrel, a, maybe a skunk, right? But there's something about not being able to see the familiar stuff that can you know, really bring up some interesting feelings, our imagination, you know. So, right, in the light, comfortable, we know what everything is. So, but our practice is almost to willingly put ourselves into the forest at night, <laughs> right? To the point where we're not clinging to the things that we know about. And then to see, yeah. That the familiar becomes unfamiliar. Yes. The same forest during the day could be your home, but then at night it's terrifying. It's the same. It's right. It's the familiar that's become the unfamiliar. Yeah. So that, of course, what Dogen is saying is that it's the unfamiliar that helps us to awaken. Mm -hmm. We also can't do our same kind of differentiation at night between, say, animate and inanimate, which seems to be kind of the point of this whole story, right? Right. Limited thinking mm -hmm. about mountains are inanimate and uh, stones are inanimate and so on, but... No, that's interesting. At night, you know, we just can't tell. Mm -hmm. Maybe night is the time when stone women give birth to children. Anything on the same nights, I was kind of hooked on the well, why at night, you know. Um, and I, something similar, I was just thinking if uh, actually, like, thinking, okay, are we, you know, we're kind of the stone woman. Yeah. You know, and the stone representing, like, kind of the rigidity of our worldviews. Okay. You know, and, well, but at night, and especially during, um, 
position, I have like very vivid dreams at night, and I like remember them, but they don't make any sense because it's almost um, like all of those concepts and those ideas of like what's possible and not possible just fall that are like kind of gone when you're in a dreamlike state, like where you can walk through walls. Sure. Or you can do, you know. That's interesting. And I found, uh, like, personally in the mornings and stuff, thinking about the gym, like, oh, like, that's what's going Like, somehow, like, it's informing me of something that I'm, like, usually not aware of because I'm, like, in my box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So, you know, that's kind of where my head went. Similar idea of, like, something about it being at night that even when we're sleeping, there's this other form of consciousness at play where we're not, like, so trapped in our ideas. Yeah. And, like, yeah. yeah, so. Anders, let me interrupt. Would sure. you give me a clock? Yeah. So, here's what Dogen said about mountains walking. He said, mountains walking is just like human walking. Accordingly, do not doubt mountain walking, even though it doesn't look the same as human walking. So this is interesting. All these things we've been saying about mountain movement are just like our movement. I'll let you chew on that. Dogen's effort is to get us to um, engage in continuous practice. And mountains do that. I, w I was talking to Bob Reculia, who's the director of the Cynical, and he's, he's a really good guy. He said, at any moment, the universe can awaken us. And mountains do that. I was telling you yesterday that um, I've visited Yellowstone many times. And uh, a few years ago, in one of my trips to Yellowstone, uh, we did a hike uh, up climbing Mount Washington. I say climbing, but it's just hiking. There's a really good path that takes you to the top. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mount Washburn. It takes you to the top of Mount Washburn, about 10,500 feet, something like that. In case you want to know, it's 25,000 steps to the top <laughs> and back. And I'd done it before. It's a beautiful hike, right? And I, I expected the mountain to present itself to me the way it presents itself, you know, rocks and trees and grasses. I never expected the mountain to present itself to me as people walking. And yet there it was. So this trail, it's easy enough that a lot of people can do it. And we had gotten to the top, hung around out there, and come back. And we rested um, at a uh, uh, switchback. You know, paths in the mountains, they don't go straight, they go zigzag in order to gain the altitude. So we, re we were resting at this switchback, 
And the mountain just revealed itself to us. Not just in the beautiful greenery and the, the rocks, but in the human walking, that was happening. So, first thing I noticed once we were rested and had some water was, there was a family coming by, and uh, mother and father, three daughters. The daughters were like all teenage, 13, 15, 17, you know, something like that, pretty close in age together. And it was so great, it was so moving. This family was exuding life and energy, right? Have you ever seen a family where you, you know they're enjoying each other, right? Where, where you know that the parents feel that these are the children that they want. <laughs> and where the children feel wanted by their parents. Right? It's, it's amazing when we see it. We don't always see it. But we do see it in the mountains. I mean, like, I've been to Yellowstone almost 20 times. It's, the families are like the most important feature of the environment because they really are all enjoying it. So it's interesting to see this, you know, this family, their engagement with each other was so obvious. And it's like they were generating a tone. They were generating their own kind of music. I heard it, struck me. I, I thought, how wonderful it must feel for them. But not so obvious, because it was all around us, was the activity of the mountain itself. Was this family always like this? Do they always have this mood and energy and appreciation of each other, and appreciation of the fact that they were vigorous and strong? Well, maybe. But really, I think the tune that they were singing was being played by the mountain. I think they wouldn't have been who they were at that moment had the mountain not been striking them, getting them to play that note. So the note that it sounded was their individual note. Okay. But it was also the pitch that the mountains were giving them. The tune was called A Joyful Hike. Right? Green mountains are always walking and sometimes they walk joyfully. So we were sitting there, I watched this family go up the switchback and the next person to come by it's a person who had some kind of um, serious medical problem. Um, I, I never know the diagnosis for things like that, but he, he had a lot of ataxia. His gait was um, uh, pretty unusual. When, when he walked, you know, one leg would swing out. It was very effortful to walk the way he, he was walking. And it was startling to see this person walking in the mountains. <laughs> right? 
was the mountain showing me here? And then, after he walked up, um, a young couple, they came up and they, uh, they paused a little ways down from us at this switchback. And they were talking with each other and, uh, you know, it seemed like they were just resting. And the fellow left the, the woman there. He walked up, and couldn't, couldn't have been more than 50 yards, looked around and walked back. And they talked to each other. And they went down the mountain. And at first I thought, oh, how sad. They, they didn't go on. Really, that might have been the best instruction of that uh, rest, though. The way I saw it was the young man went up to scout for his girlfriend or wife or whatever and came back and told her, it's still pretty steep. <laughs> uh, and they decided to, you know, go down. But the way I saw it was there was this loving thing that happened. You know, they both had wanted to go up this mountain. And I don't know why they couldn't, whether somebody had pain or whatever. But there was this loving act of affirming, well, really, what we are is we're together. <laughs> we're not mountain climbers. We're a couple. And so we'll do this. And I thought about these three examples of the mountain. Examples of um, the walking of mountains. And I thought, this is a great instruction for our practice. The family showed us something about uh, what in Japanese we called kishi, joyful mind. The family showed us how joyful mind emerges in the middle of our activity, in the middle of our practice. It's not that we make it happen. It's not that we're doing something wrong if we're not joyful. But sometimes, out of our practice, emerges joy. Just like uh, sometimes, out of our practice, we have an appreciation for what it is to make effort like the, the young man that I saw who had the gait problems. We know, you know, to sit in Zazen, it requires effort. And there was this great teaching about, wow, that's effort. It did make me think the next time uh, I was sitting in Zazen, I had maybe, you know, a pain in my back or whatever. You know, he was like that then who am I? And the couple was really the most interesting because they showed me, I guess the mountain showed them the kindness of love. And we need this in our practice too, right? Being kind to ourselves. When we're on the cushion, especially. When we're off the cushion, really. 
this is another element that we need in our practice. And the mountain showed them all to me. Was I observing people, or was I just observing how the mountain reveals itself? Dogen told us, if you doubt the walking of mountains, then you don't know your own walking. It's not that you do not walk, but that you do not know or understand your walking. Since you do know your own walking, you should fully know the Green Mountains walk. you one more story about mountains. Story about Dongshan, the teacher I was telling you about. Saw his reflection in the stream and awakening. Dongshan asked a monk, where have you been? The monk said, walking on the mountain. Dongshan said, did you reach the peak? The monk said, I reached it. there. So what are they talking about? I think they're talking about awakening. I think so too. Where have you been? I've been walking on the mountain. Did you reach the peak? The monk said, I did. Dongshan said, were there people there? <laughs> the monk said, there weren't any people. Dongshan said, in that case, you didn't reach the peak. <laughs> Challenging teacher, right? In that case, you didn't reach the peak. The monk said, if I hadn't been to the peak, how would I know that there are no people there? <laughs> yeah. And Dongshan said, well, why didn't you stay there? <laughs> and the monk said, I would stay there, but there's someone in India who would disapprove. That's so it, isn't it? Did you have some awakening? Yes, I did have some awakening. Why didn't you stay there? Hmm. Because there's someone in India, Shakyamuni Buddha, who wouldn't approve. There's someone in India who says, when you get up off your cushion, help people. Don't stay in the place where there are no people. Help people. Dongshad said, formerly I had doubted this fellow. <laughs> but he really had it all, didn't he? He sat and he got up off his cushion. 
which is what we've been doing and, and we'll continue to do. We've been sitting for, I don't know, a lot of periods. And Sashin will end and we'll get up off our cushions. And we'll notice the, the walking of mountains. And uh, hopefully will be helpful to others. <laughs>